Shalom, and welcome to Via Hafta Yisrael, a Hebrew phrase which means you shall love Israel. We hope you'll stay with us for the next 30 minutes as our teacher, Dr. Baruch, shares his expository teaching from the Bible. Dr. Baruch is the senior lecturer at the Zera Avraham Institute based in Israel. Although all courses are taught in Hebrew at the Institute, Dr. Baruch is pleased to share this weekly address in English. To find out more about our work in Israel, please visit us on the web at loveisrael.org. That's one word, loveisrael.org. Now, here's Baruch with today's lesson. You are being watched. Watched by fellow believers and watched by other individuals as well. And as I've said, your testimony should be of the utmost importance to you. Because your testimony is influencing people. The question is, is it a positive influence or, God forbid, a negative influence? Well, take out your Bible and look with me to 1 Thessalonians and chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians and chapter 2. Now, we're going to begin where we left off last week in verse 10. Paul is speaking to this congregation that has influence, a godly influence on others, not just in Thessaloniki where they are, but throughout this, this Greek empire that, that still is in existence. Of course, the Romans are ruling over it, but it's still highly influenced by, by the Greeks and their, their gods and false teaching. Their culture is still very much prevalent in society. And the gospel comes to change that culture and make it into a godly culture. We're called to do battle with this world and to bring about change. And for the most part, the world does not want godly change, righteous change. And we're going to see that there is much opposition that Paul and Timothy and others who work with them and the congregation that, that we're addressing much hardship, much opposition that they're going through. So look with me to our, our first verse this evening. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to begin in verse 10. Now, I'll read this initially in a very literal way, and then sometimes because Greek can be a very direct, but from an English standpoint, the literalness can appear choppy at times. So we'll work together in order to, to glean what truly Paul has written. We read in verse 10, we, and the implication is witnesses, we are witnesses, we have borne witness, and also God. So what Paul is testifying to, he's confident that God agrees with him. Why? Well, because Paul has agreed with God. How do we flesh that out? How do we put that into practice? Agreeing with God? We submit. So Paul is speaking about his submissiveness. And I say flesh it out, meaning in the body, we are called to bring our bodies to obedience to the, the will of God. And this is what Paul has done. Those who are with him have done this. The congregation is walking in this. And he says to them, we are witnesses also God. And what are they witnesses of? As holy, and it could speak of holiness, 
and righteousness and this next word which means without a spot or a blemish something that that does not lend itself to to that which is apart from the will of God now these are strong statements and it's what we should aspire to that we would live a holy life a righteous life and not have something that is is visible in our life that people can point to that damages our credibility our testimony our our statement of faith so Paul says here you meaning and we'll translate this properly you are witnesses and also God as holiness and righteousness and without blemish unto you and who's unto you to the believers and he says we have become you have in this phrase some will say we have behaved but but literally it's we have become you can testify as God is concerning what we were in your presence move on to the next verse verse 11 just as each of you know as a father his children now it's speaking about two things here paul he has a position of leadership of course with the other apostles those who are serving with him and they're there to provide again we talked about this last week they are not there to receive to take things they're not there to to be exalted to find the glory of man to be praised by others this is not his motivation he comes in the same way that a father deals with his children the father wants to give provide support not looking for something in return his joy as we'll see at the end of our study is seeing his children be approved by God having that righteous testimony but look again verse 11 just as you know each one of you as a father his children and he says encouraging you and comforting and this would also be comforting you also bearing witness and then keep reading he says bearing witness to you walking worthily before God having called you into his kingdom and glory verses 11 and 12 now the reason why I did these two together is that there's a question in different Greek manuscripts where the end of verse 11 is and the beginning of verse 12 but let's just unpack what he says here first and foremost he talks about in verse 11 that they know these things and the word here for knowing is an experiential one they are not just seeing or hearing but they are are firsthand accounts of firsthand accounts they have received of how Paul is living and he says here our motivation is as a father is for his children and what does he want to do encourage now this word encouraging is a word which means to encourage that which is right to encourage to exhort meaning provide strong incentive motivate them to do the right thing always to be a force for that which is is God's will so he says encouraging or exhorting you 
and comforting you, also bearing witness, testifying. And then the next word is the word walk. Now I've mentioned this word walking is the same term in the Hebrew language where Jewish law is derived from that term, halacha, from the word halicha, walking. This is, of course, Greek, but that same concept comes in. It's just simply translated into the Greek language. And he says, for you to walk, and he says, in a worthy, in a worthy way of God, worthy of God, the one having called you into his kingdom. Now, it's not something that, that is future, but there's a foretaste of that kingdom within us right now. Messiah taught that. This does not mean that there's not a kingdom coming very different. We're not living in the kingdom, but we have a foretaste of kingdom truth, of that kingdom character within us. And we're called to demonstrate it. That's what it means by having that, that walk worthy, worthy of God. And then he testifies, having been called, you being called into his kingdom. And notice, kingdom and glory go together. Now, what is that all about? Well, in the kingdom of God, God's presence is going to be manifested always. And the presence of God being manifested is seen in God's glory. In the book of Zechariah, chapter 14, it speaks about unique light. And that unique light is what characterizes it's there all the time. In the morning, afternoon, when you would think at the time of darkness, there's going to be light. And, and that light is unique it's the same type of light that filled creation when God said, let there be light. Now, he said that on Yom Echad, on that, that day one, what oftentimes is translated the first day. But we know that, that the sun, the moon, the stars, what we would think of light today, was not created until the fourth day. So on day one, when the scripture says, Vayihi, or let there be light, and there was light on day one, it was unique. It was a light that, that stemmed from God's presence, him being brought into creation and God making creation different. What do I mean by that? It was empty, void, formless. It did not reflect the order of God. But when God, through his spirit and through his word, began to move, he brought about a kingdom order that was ruined by sin. Sin always attacks the manifestation of the glory of God. It does not attach itself to the glory of God, it affects the glory, but only the manifestation of God's glory. So he says, for you to walk worthily of God who has called you into his kingdom and glory. Now look at verse 13. Because of these wonderful promises, a kingdom hope, that's a sure hope. He says here, therefore, this, on account of this, we could understand it as, therefore, this, and we, on account of this, because of this, also we give thanks to God. How? Well, there's that word we've encountered 
earlier in, in Paul's writings, this word which means unceasing, continuously, ongoing at all times. Now, one of the things that, to me, that stands out most about Paul is that so many times he talks about prayer without ceasing. He talks about prayer without stopping, just continuously in prayer. And I believe that more than anything else, this is what had the greatest impact on Paul's, Paul's ministry. How successful he was because he was a man of prayer. Look again. On account of this, also we give thanks to God without ceasing. Because, and he's speaking to them, because of the receiving of the word of God. Now, some Bibles will say, having heard, but that is a verb. It's literally a noun for a report. So, the word of God, a report, it says, from us. So, they gave a report of the word of God, it says, from us, meaning from Paul and Timothy and others. From us, he says, you received. And how did they receive it? He says, not the word of men. So, they didn't hear this word as something that came from individuals, as, as a human source. But they heard it very differently. They understood it, and keep reading what he says, but just as it is truly. Now, again, Paul is writing in a very strong, in a very purposeful manner. And he's wanting to emphasize, and unless you believe that, you are not going to deal with God's word properly. And I would, would, would say to you today, there's many people that stand up with the word of God in their hand, and they do not see it literally as God's word without error. That word of God, that is his perfect revelation to us. And that word that produces kingdom change, a kingdom reality in our life that makes us a new creation, that gives us access to Almighty God. They don't see it this way. Or they wouldn't translate it so carelessly, and they wouldn't deal with it so carelessly when they teach. So God wants us to understand, and Paul is echoing this and emphasizing this in his, his words. But just as it is truly the word of God. And this word of God, notice what it says. Who also, and this is a word for work but it's working out. We could translate it producing. So this is what I want to emphasize to you. When we truly recognize God's word as just that, his word to us, truth without any error, a word that is powerful, a word that does not return void, a word that brings about change, godly changes, setting things in the order of God. We must if we're going to be effective in our, our call, if we're going to truly experience God as God wants us to experience him, we must, and I can't overemphasize that, we must receive this book, Scripture, as God's perfect revelation. And only when we do, what happens? He says, which also produces in you, in you, the ones who are believing.
Now, first, believing the testimony that he's emphasized in our study last week, the gospel. You must believe the gospel. You must believe in the identity, and here's this, the biblical identity of Yeshua, of Jesus of Nazareth. If you simply believe that, that he was a, a rabbi, that he was a wonderful teacher, that God used him to do miracles and such, if you believe that his word is, is practical, that is not enough. It, you must believe that he is the risen son of God, having been crucified, but now risen from the dead, ascended to the Father, the very divine son of God. And if you don't believe that, you are not saved. So realize, and I want again to make no, no uh, mistake about it. If someone does not believe in the divinity of Messiah, that, that Yeshua is the Son of God, if you don't confess that by name, His name, whether you say Jesus or Jesus or Yeshua or Jesus, you're talking about the biblical Messiah. If you don't confess Him as the divine Son of God, you are not saved. You are still lost and dead in your trespasses and sin. Now, something that is inherently related to his divinity is the virgin birth. So let me just be real clear about this. If someone says, oh, this virgin birth, I, I struggle with that. I, it, it's just a little bit too much for me to, to accept, but I still love Yeshua. I still have accepted him. I, I still believe in him. No, you haven't. Because that difficulty in accepting the virgin birth means you're still struggling with his identity, that he is divine. These two things, the virgin birth and the divinity of Messiah, are, are hand in hand. And when you talk about the divinity of Messiah, you are either going to accept the Trinity or not. Because if you don't, then you have one or two problems. You are either going to believe in a oneness doctrine, that is heresy, or you're going to have more than one God. It's the Trinity that speaks about God who loved us and sent, here's the key, His Son. Not Himself, but His Son. Now, because Yeshua is the Son of God, there's that intimacy, that, that oneness, but not what the oneness, oneness doctrine teaches. So we believe that God has revealed himself in three persons. So it's of the utmost that we accept the testimony of Scripture. And that's what Paul is saying here when he says, just as, look at the end of verse 13, just as it is truly the word of God. And it's only when you believe truly it's the word of God that this word also will produce in you the ones who are believing. Now move to verse 14. We read here, For you have become, now some mistranslate this next word, followers. Now we are followers, but this word is more precise, more exact, and I believe conveys something more than simply being a follower. It's the word, imitator. So you have become imitators, meaning this, we're called to behave as Messiah did. We're not the Son of God in the capital sense, the Son of God, but we become children of God, heirs of God, 
that word for son can mean servants of God. He is the servant of God. We are servants of God. He is the only divine son of God. And we are human beings endowed with the spirit of God in order that we might do the work of God. But verse 14, for, for you have become imitators, brethren, of the, the congregations, the churches of God, being in Judea, the ones who are in Judea, speaking about those congregations, he says, you, O, o Thessalonians, your congregation is called to imitate these congregations that are in Judea, the ones that are in Messiah Shul. Now, notice that, imitators. This has some very important implications that many people uh, uh, do not know. Now, let me go off on a significant tangent. Now, there's a movement, and I consider myself part of that movement, but we may have some disagreements. I'm not under the authority, just like you're not under the authority of, of man, we're under the authority of God as the Word of God reveals. Here's a problem I have with one aspect of the Messianic movement, and that is this. There is a tendency today, wasn't always the case, but there's a tendency today, a growing tendency, for those who are of the Messianic Jew Jewish movement to say this, that the law of God has greater relevance for Jewish believers than non-Jewish believers. I want you to hear something. I totally reject that. Now, we're not talking about what another group, the Hebrew Roots movements teach. I'm not part of that group at all. But I want you to hear something. That it is wrong to say, as certain ones do in leadership today, in some of the major Messianic movements, that the law has greater relevance for Jewish believers than non-Jewish believers. This verse that we're looking at destroys that, proves that is false. Why? What is Paul saying to those in Thessaloniki? Now, here again, some of them were presumably Jewish. There was a Jewish community there, but primarily there were non-Jews that were part of this congregation. And he says here, verse 14, for you have become imitators, brethren, of the congregations, these houses of worship, these local assemblies, the churches of God, the ones being in Judea, in Messiah Yeshua. And he says, because such things, the same things in other words, but he says, these things you suffer, also you from or by your own countrymen. Now, this is what he's saying. And it's very important that we hear this properly. He's saying, because of your faith in the message of the gospel, the truth of God's revelation, those who belong to the world who reject that, they are persecuting you. You are suffering at their hands. And they are who? Your fellow countrymen, meaning fellow Gentiles primarily. That, that hear the message of the gospel, the truth of scripture, and because they belong to the world, they are against the word of God. 
And this congregation is suffering. But they're imitating the same thing that happens to the congregations in Judea, meaning in Israel. And what's happening? He says, look at the next part of verse 14. Just as also these by the, and most people say Jews, but we're speaking about something different. He's speaking about in the same way that Jewish believers suffer at the hands of who? Well, if you simply say Jewish people, that's incorrect. The majority of Jewish people living in Israel at that time when Paul was alive weren't persecuting, didn't care, wasn't uh, really interested in what those believers of Israel, of Jewish believers, were doing. We need to be very clear on language. What this term is referring to is the Judeans. Who were they? The Judeans were those who lived around Jerusalem in Judea that were of the traditions of the elders. It was those individuals primarily that were persecutors. The Pharisees were, were part leaders of this movement, but there were others as well. So he's not talking here about, about simply Jewish people coming against believers. The believers he's speaking to in the second part of this verse are Jewish believers that are suffering at the hands of other Jewish people, but not the Jewish people in general, but those who are part of the Judeans, meaning those who are part of that, that oral tradition. Look at verse 15. It was those. Now, Yeshua, many times he was very popular. One place I could tell you to go to is John chapter 7. And you see that during the Feast of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, what do we see? Everyone was talking. And who was there for the Feast of Tabernacles primarily? Jewish individuals that had come from various places throughout the world. They were there because it's one of the three festivals that the Word of God requires to be in Jerusalem to observe. So they were there. And they were fearful of who? The Jews? No. The Judeans. They weren't fearful. They were Jewish. They weren't fearful of other Jewish people. But they were fearful of those Jewish individuals that were part of leadership. Those that were of the Judeans, which for the most part was controlling the Sanhedrin. At least their influence was, was dominant. So that's who we're talking about, not the Jewish people in general. Look now to verse 15. It was the leadership. Not all the leaders, but a, a majority of the leaders that did what it speaks about here in verse 15. Who also the Lord Yeshua, having put to death, also, not just have put him to death, but also their own prophets. So there's something consistent that Paul's saying here. They put Yeshua to death. They put the prophets to death. Why? Because this world is opposed to the things of God. And what he's saying here in these two verses is this. It doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile. If you belong to this world, you are against the things of God and you're going to persecute. You are going to be in opposition to the things of God. Those ones in Thessaloniki, they were experiencing that from who? From, from Gentiles. And those that were in Israel, they were experiencing it from also their countrymen, 
but not all their countrymen, those that were part of the, the traditions of the elders. And we know that some of those in, in Judea, in precisely Jerusalem, who came from there to persecute and hinder the work of Paul. This is what he's referring to here. And he says, look at the last part of verse 15. And we are persecuted. He's saying, we're too. This is what I'm referring to, the Judaizers. For example, from the book of Galatians, he's referring to that same group. We are persecuted. And it says, these individuals that are persecuting, it says, not pleasing to God, meaning they're not ones who are pleasing to God. And notice what it says. It says, against all men, meaning this. Paul came, the apostles came, Messiah came, the prophets came, not in opposition to humanity. They weren't wanting to do things that caused humanity problems. Quite the contrary. They wanted to share God's worth, word of redemption, God's word of restoration. So the Jew first and also the Greek, meaning the Gentile, that they could experience the power of God for salvation. But those of the world, both Jew and Gentile, those of the world, they were in opposition to that. That's what Paul is speaking about. Look now to verse 16. This same group, it says, having opposed or maybe hindered would be a better word, having hindered us from speaking to the Gentiles in order that they might be saved. That's what we saw, for example, that's at the heart of the book of Galatians, these Judaizers. They were supposedly of, of James, meaning they, they respected Yeshua. They believed that he was Messiah, but they didn't have the gospel straight. And they were saying it's faith plus works that equals salvation. And that one must first convert to become a Jew in order to be preached to. That's what we see, for example, in the book of Acts chapter 15, that Jerusalem council, when Paul was dealing with, Paul was saying, no, a Gentile does not have to convert and become Jewish. He can be saved and receive that same Holy Spirit by faith, the same faith in the same message to the house of Israel. No difference whatsoever. So he says, they were hindering us to speak to the Gentiles in order that they might be saved. Now he's going to deal what the outcome is going to be for those who hinder the gospel, who stand in opposition to the things of God. He writes it very clearly. He says, for the fullness of their sins. They, because of the sum total of their sins, this opposition to the things of God, that the prophet, prophet spoke to, the word of God testified to, they were against it. And it says, always. So for the fullness of their sins, being in opposition to the things of God always, he says, the wrath, meaning the wrath of God, the wrath of God upon them for completion, for totality. That's what they're going to experience, the wrath of God for, and this is the word telos, which means for the end, the end objective to bring about the desired outcome conclusion that God desires. Now go to verse 17. Here he says, 
but we, brethren, so he's speaking again to the Thessalonians. He says, but we, brethren, having been bereaved. Now he's speaking about a word that's usually associated with death, losing someone. And he's saying the same mourning, the same pain, this grief of, of mourning, we've also experienced. Why? He says, but we, brethren, being grieved from you. Why? They're apart from, from them. He says, for a season, and then we have the word hour. So he says, we're apart, we are grieved, but it's only for a season of an hour, which means it's an idiom, which means only for a short term. And then he has two words, pros, uh, I want to get this right in Hebrew, in Greek, pros, prospoan, which is face. So he says face, which is presence. So he's saying here, we have been grieved, but only for a short time uh, in the presence, meaning we're separated face to face, this present time. We're, we're not experiencing each other. We're not in one another's company, but we, we are not grieved of heart. Why? There's still that connection through prayer and such. Paul's remembering them. Paul's hearing reports. So he says, we're grieved. We're bereaved from the fact that we are physically separated. We're not together in your presence, but he says, not in heart, meaning we still think of you. You still have a place in our heart. And he says, all the more so, being hasty, meaning a strong desire to haste, to do something quickly. He says, to see your face, meaning to be in your presence, he says, with much desire. He has much desire to go and be present with them. He says, currently, I'm grieved over the fact that we're separated, we're not together. But, but that's only physically, inwardly, in our heart, we're still very close to you and thinking of you. Verse 18. Therefore, we want to come to you, and Paul's making this personal, he says, I, Paul, and he says, once and twice. So he says, previously, there was one time and there was another time that I had planned. My, my calendar was set to come to you twice. But what happens? He says, having been hindered, Satan, us. So Satan hindered us two previous times from coming to see you. Verse 19. Now, the last two verses, great verses. It, it gives us a true understanding, a, a, a capsule of what Paul was really like. And he says here, look at verse 19. For a certain hope. So he's speaking about a certain meaning, a specific hope. You might translate it this way. For what is our hope? What is he hoping for? And he says, or joy. Now, in Greek, the word or can be thought of as. So he says, what is our hope, joy, and crown of boasting? Now, these are three very strong words. He is speaking about something that is very significant to him. 
And he says, what is our hope? What's our joy? What is the crown of our boasting meaning? Boasting what we're going to be praising God for. And he says, is it not also you? Now notice what he's boasting about, what he's excited about, what he's joyful about, what his hope is. He says, is it not even you? We could translate that word, even you meaning those believers in Thessaloniki, when they are before our Lord, Messiah Yeshua, when? At his coming. So Paul says, this is what excites me. What you're going to experience at the time of Messiah's coming, this is the rapture. So he's saying, I'm excited. What is our hope, our, our joy, our, our boasting? is what you're going to experience at the rapture that you're going to be transformed into the very very kingdom people now we have a foretaste we have an assurance of that by the giving of the holy spirit but what it's going to be like how great it's going to be when we are transformed into that kingdom body our souls and that kingdom body together for eternity paul says this is what I'm hoping for. It's not wishing for. He knows it's going to be. He says, this is the source of my joy. This is my crown of boasting. And then he says, let's conclude. Verse 20. For you are our glory. Now, he's not looking for something personal. He's not looking for some uh, earthly reward. God's so pleased he's going to give him that beautiful mansion. That, that luxurious sports car to drive around in. That wonderful bank account that's greater than everyone else. That he has no financial concerns. This is not what motivates Paul. And it ought not motivate you. Those things, more often than not, are a hindrance to spirituality. They don't have to be. There's nothing bad in and of themselves. But for most of us, these things hinder. And we need to remember what Proverbs says. God, don't give me too much that I'll be boastful and prideful and trust in those things. And God, don't, don't let me have too little that I'm not surviving. I may be, be tempted to do something I ought not do to, to get my basic needs. That scripture is saying from Proverbs, I believe, chapter 30. God, give me that right amount that you know that I can be a good steward of. That's wisdom. That's how we should pray. That's what, what Proverbs teaches in that matter. So he says here, Great verse, last verse, verse 20. For you are our glory and joy. What gives Paul glory? And we're talking about just joyfulness, contentment, a feeling of, of victory, that sensation. It's his effective ministry to other people. Paul is waiting for the time that he like us we will be changed we will be in the kingdom of heaven before the wrath of god begins and we are going to know what did our lives amount to so let me close with this what is your life really amounting to you say you're a believer sure you are praise god for that but what's going to be the outcome of that meaning this what is god doing with you to influence others what we see here is for paul it was huge it was his objective to be used by god to be a godly influence in the life of others 
that's wisdom that's the manner of life that you'll never regret that you'll be praising God for for all of eternity well I'll close with that until next week may God bless you Shalom from Israel well we hope you will benefit from today's message and share it with others please plan to join us each week at this time and on this channel for our broadcast of loveisrael.org again to find out more about us please visit our website loveisrael.org there you will find articles and numerous other lectures by Baruch these teachings are in video form you may download them or watch them in streaming video until next week May the Lord bless you in our Messiah Yeshua, that is, Jesus, as you walk with Him. Shalom from Israel.